Section 34 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Dennis Sayers. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book 9, Chapter 4 in which the arrival of a man-of-war puts a final end to hostilities, and causes the conclusion of a firm and lasting peace between all parties. A sergeant and a file of musketeers, with a deserter in their custody, arrived about this time. The sergeant presently inquired for the principal magistrate of the town, and was informed by my landlord that he himself was vested in that office. He then demanded his billets, together with a mug of beer, and, complaining it was cold, spread himself before the kitchen fire. Mr. Jones was at this time comforting the poor distressed lady, who sat down at a table in the kitchen, and, leaning her head upon her arm, was bemoaning her misfortunes, but, lest my fair readers should be in pain concerning a particular circumstance, I think proper here to acquaint them that, before she had quitted the room above stairs, she had so well covered herself with a pillow-beer, which she there found, that her regard to decency was not in the least violated by the presence of so many men as were now in the room. One of the soldiers now went up to the sergeant, and whispered something in his ear, upon which he steadfastly fixed his eyes on the lady, and, having looked at her for near a minute, he came up to her, saying, I ask pardon, madam, but I am certain I am not deceived. You can be no other person than Captain Waters, lady. The poor woman, who in her present distress had very little regarded the face of any person present, no sooner looked at the sergeant than she presently recollected him, and, calling him by his name, answered that she was indeed the unhappy person he imagined her to be, but added, I wonder any one should know me in this disguise. To which the sergeant replied, He was very much surprised to see her ladyship in such a dress, and was afraid some accident had happened to her. An accident hath happened to me indeed, says she, and I am highly obliged to this gentleman, pointing to Jones, that it was not a fatal one, or that... I am now living to mention it. Whatever the gentleman hath done, cries the sergeant, I am sure the captain will make him amends for it, and if I can be of any service, your ladyship may command me, and I shall think myself very happy to have it in my power to serve your ladyship, and so indeed may any one, for I know the captain will well reward them for it. The landlady, 
who heard from the stairs all that passed between the sergeant and Mrs. Waters, came hastily down, and running directly up to her, began to ask pardon for the offences she had committed, begging that all might be imputed to ignorance of her quality. For, Lud, madam, says she, how should I have imagined that a lady of your fashion would appear in such a dress? I am sure, madam, if I had once suspected that your ladyship was your ladyship, I would sooner have burnt my tongue out than have said what I have said, and I hope your ladyship will accept of a gown till you can get your own clothes. Prithee, woman, says Mrs. Waters, cease your impertinence. How can you imagine I should concern myself about anything which comes from the lips of such low creatures as yourself? But I am surprised at your assurance, in thinking, after what is past, that I will condescend to put on any of your dirty things. I would have you know, creature, I have a spirit above that. Here Jones interfered, and begged Mrs. Waters to forgive the landlady, and to accept her gown. For, I must confess, cries he, our appearance was a little suspicious when first we came in. And I am well assured, all this good woman did was, as she professed, out of regard to the reputation of her house. Yes, upon my truly was it, says she. The gentleman speaks very much like a gentleman, and I see very plainly is so. And, to be certain, the house is well known to be a house of as good reputation as any on the road, and, though I say it, is frequented by gentry of the best quality, both Irish and English. I defy anybody to say black is my eye, for that matter. And, as I was saying, if I had known your ladyship to be your ladyship, I would as soon have burnt my fingers as have affronted your ladyship. But, truly, where gentry come and spend their money, I am not willing that they should be scandalized by a set of poor shabby vermin, that, wherever they go, leave more lice than money behind them. Such folks never raise my compassion, for to be certain it is foolish to have any for them. And if our justices did as they ought, they would be all whipped out of the kingdom, for to be certain it is what is most fitting for them. But as for your ladyship, I am heartily sorry, your ladyship hath had a misfortune, and if your ladyship will do me the honour to wear my clothes till you can get some of your ladyship's own, to be certain, the best I have is at your ladyship's service. Whether cold, shame, or the persuasions of Mr. Jones prevailed most on Mrs. Waters, I will not determine, but she suffered herself to be pacified by this speech of my landlady, and retired with that good woman, in order to apparel herself in a decent manner. 
My landlord was likewise beginning his oration to Jones, but was presently interrupted by that generous youth, who shook him heartily by the hand, and assured him of entire forgiveness, saying, If you are satisfied, my worthy friend, I promise you I am. And, indeed, in one sense, the landlord had the better reason to be satisfied, for he had received a belly full of drubbing, whereas Jones had scarce felt a single blow. Partridge, who had been all this time washing his bloody nose at the pump, returned from the kitchen at the instant when his master and the landlord were shaking hands with each other. As he was of a peaceable disposition, he was pleased with those symptoms of reconciliation, and though his face bore some marks of Susan's fist, and many more of her nails, he rather chose to be contented with his fortune in the last battle than to endeavour at bettering it in another. The heroic Susan was likewise well contented with her victory, though it had cost her a black eye, which Partridge had given her at the first onset. Between these two, therefore, a league was struck, and those hands which had been the instruments of war became now the mediators of peace. Matters were thus restored to a perfect calm, at which the sergeant, though it may seem so contrary to the principles of his profession, testified his approbation. "'Well, now, that's friendly,' said he. "'Damn me, I hate to see two people bear ill-will to one another after they have had a tussle. The only way when friends quarrel is to see it out fairly in a friendly manner, as a man may call it, either with a fist, a sword, or pistol, according as they like, and then let it be all over. For my part, damn me if I ever love my friend better than when I am fighting with him. To bear malice is more like a Frenchman than an Englishman. He then proposed a libation as a necessary part of the ceremony at all treaties of this kind. Perhaps the reader may here conclude that he was well versed in ancient history, but this, though highly probable, as he cited no authority to support the custom, I will not affirm with any confidence. Most likely, indeed, it is, that he founded his opinion on very good authority, since he confirmed it with many violent oaths. Jones no sooner heard the proposal than, immediately agreeing with the learned sergeant, he ordered a bowl, or rather a large mug, filled with the liquor used on these occasions, to be brought in, and then began the ceremony himself. He placed his right hand in that of the landlord, and seizing the bowl with his left, uttered the usual words, and then made his libation. After which the same was observed by all present. Indeed, 
there is very little of being particular in describing the whole form as it differed so little from those libations of which so much is recorded in ancient authors and their modern transcribers the principal difference lay in two instances for first the present company poured the liquor only down their throats and secondly the sergeant who officiated as priest drank the last but he preserved i believe the ancient form in swallowing much the largest draught of the whole company and in being the only person present who contributed nothing towards the libation besides his good office in assisting at the performance the good people now ranged themselves round the kitchen fire where good humour seemed to maintain an absolute dominion and partridge not only forgot his shameful defeat but converted hunger into thirst and soon became extremely facetious we must however quit this agreeable assembly for a while and attend mr jones to mrs waters apartment where the dinner which he had bespoke was now on the table indeed it took no long time in preparing having been all dressed three days before and required nothing more from the cook than to warm it over again chapter five an apology for all heroes who have good stomachs with a description of a battle of the amorous kind heroes notwithstanding the high ideas which by the means of flatterers they may entertain of themselves or the world may conceive of them have certainly more of mortal than divine about them however elevated their minds may be their bodies at least which is much the major part of most are liable to be the worst infirmities and subject to the vilest offices of human nature among these latter the act of eating which hath by several wise men been considered as extremely mean and derogatory from the philosophic dignity must be in some measure performed by the greatest prince hero or philosopher upon earth nay sometimes nature hath been so frolicsome as to exact of these dignified creatures a much more exorbitant share of this office than she hath obliged those of the lowest order to perform to say the truth as no known inhabitant of this globe is really more than man so none need be ashamed of submitting to what the necessities of man demand but when those great personages i have just mentioned condescend to aim at confining such low offices to themselves as when by hoarding or destroying they seem desirous to prevent any others from eating then they surely become very low and despicable now 
After this short preface, we think it no disparagement to our hero to mention the immoderate ardor with which he laid about him at this season. Indeed, it may be doubted whether Ulysses, who, by the way, seems to have had the best stomach of all the heroes in that eating poem of the Odyssey, ever made a better meal. Three pounds at least of that flesh, which formerly had contributed to the composition of an ox, was now honoured with becoming part of the individual Mr. Jones. This particular we thought ourselves obliged to mention, as it may account for our hero's temporary neglect of his fair companion, who ate but very little, and was indeed employed in considerations of a very different nature, which passed unobserved by Jones, till he had entirely satisfied that appetite which a fast of twenty-four hours had procured him. But his dinner was no sooner ended than his attention to other matters revived. With these matters, therefore, we shall now proceed to acquaint the reader. Mr. Jones, of whose personal accomplishments we have hitherto said very little, was in reality one of the handsomest young fellows in the world. His face, besides being the picture of health, had in it the most apparent marks of sweetness and good nature. These qualities were indeed so characteristical in his countenance, that while the spirit and sensibility in his eyes, though they must have been perceived by an accurate observer, might have escaped the notice of the less discerning, so strongly was this good nature painted in his look, that it was remarked by almost every one who saw him. It was, perhaps, as much owing to this as to a very fine complexion, that his face had a delicacy in it almost inexpressible, and which might have given him an air rather too effeminate, had it not been joined to a most masculine person and mean, which latter had as much in them of the Hercules as the former had of the Adonis. He was, besides, active, genteel, gay, and good-humoured, and had a flow of animal spirits which enlivened every conversation where he was present. When the reader hath duly reflected on these many charms which all centred in our hero, and considers at the same time the fresh obligations which Mrs. Waters had to him, it will be a mark more of prudery than candor to entertain a bad opinion of her, because she conceived a very good opinion of him. But whatever censures may be passed upon her, it is my business to relate matters of fact with veracity. Mrs. Waters had, in truth, not only a good opinion of our hero, but a very great affection for him. To speak out boldly at once, 
she was in love, according to the present universally received sense of that phrase, by which love is applied indiscriminately to the desirable objects of all our passions, appetites, and senses, and is understood to be that preference which we give to one kind of food rather than to another. But though the love to these several objects may possibly be one and the same in all cases, its operation, however, must be allowed to be different. For how much soever we may be in love with an excellent sirloin of beef, or bottle of burgundy, with a damask rose, or cremona fiddle, yet do we never smile, nor ogle, nor dress, nor flatter, nor endeavor by any other arts or tricks to gain the affection of the said beef, etc. Sigh, indeed, we sometimes may, but it is generally in the absence, not in the presence, of the beloved object. For otherwise we might possibly complain of their ingratitude and deafness, with the same reason as Pasiphae doth of her bull, whom she endeavoured to engage by all the coquetry practised with good success in the drawing-room, on the much more sensible, as well as tender hearts, of the fine gentlemen there. The contrary happens in that love, which operates between persons of the same species, but of different sexes. Here we are no sooner in love, than it becomes our principal care to engage the affection of the object beloved. For what other purpose indeed are our youth instructed in all the arts of rendering themselves agreeable? If it was not with a view to this love, I question whether any of those trades which deal in setting off and adorning the human person would procure a livelihood. Nay, those great polishers of our manners, who are by some thought to teach what principally distinguishes us from the brute creation, even dancing-masters themselves, might possibly find no place in society. In short, all the graces which young ladies and young gentlemen, too, learn from others, and the many improvements which, by the help of a looking-glass, they add of their own, are, in reality, those very spicula et facis amores, so often mentioned by Ovid, or, as they are sometimes called in our own language, the whole artillery of love. Now, Mrs. Waters and our hero had no sooner sat down together than the former began to play this artillery upon the latter. But here, as we are about to attempt a description hitherto unassayed, either in prose or verse, we think proper to invoke the assistance of certain aerial beings, who will, we doubt not, come kindly to our aid on this occasion. Say then, ye graces, you that inhabit the heavenly mansions of Seraphina's countenance, for you are truly divine, are always in her presence, and well know all the arts of charming, 
Say, what were the weapons now used to cultivate the heart of Mr. Jones? First, from two lovely blue eyes, whose bright orbs flashed lightning at their discharge, flew forth two pointed ogles, but happily for our hero hit only a vast piece of beef, which he was then conveying into his plate, and harmless spent their force. The fair warrior perceived their miscarriage, and immediately from her fair bosom drew forth a deadly sigh, a sigh which none could have heard unmoved, and which was sufficient at once to have swept off a dozen bows, so soft, so sweet, so tender, that the insinuating air must have found its subtle way to the heart of our hero, had it not, luckily, been driven from his ears by the coarse bubbling of some bottled ale, which at that time he was pouring forth. Many other weapons did she assay, but the god of eating, if there be any such deity, for I do not confidently assert it, preserved his votary. Or perhaps it may not be dignus vindice notus, and the present security of Jones may be accounted for by natural means. For as love frequently preserves from the attacks of hunger, so may hunger possibly in some cases defend us against love. This fair one, engaged at her frequent disappointments, determined on a short cessation of arms, which interval she employed in making ready every engine of amorous warfare for the renewing of the attack when dinner should be over. No sooner then was the cloth removed than she again began her operations. First, having planted her right eye sideways against Mr. Jones, she shot from its corner a most penetrating glance, which, though great part of its force was spent before it reached our hero, did not vent itself absolutely without effect. This the fair one, perceiving, hastily withdrew her eyes, and leveled them downwards, as if she was concerned for what she had done, though by this means she designed only to draw him from his guard, and indeed to open his eyes, through which she intended to surprise his heart. And now, gently lifting up those two bright orbs which had already begun to make an impression on poor Jones, she discharged a volley of small charms at once from her whole countenance in a smile. Not a smile of mirth, nor of joy, but a smile of affection, which most ladies have always ready at their command, and which serves them to show at once their good humour, their pretty dimples, and their white teeth. This smile our hero received full in the eyes, and was immediately staggered with its force. He then began to see the designs of the enemy, 
and indeed to feel their success. A parley now was set on foot between the parties, during which the artful fair so slyly and imperceptibly carried on her attack, that she had almost subdued the heart of our hero, before she again repaired to acts of hostility. To confess the truth, I am afraid Mr. Jones maintained a kind of Dutch defence, and treacherously delivered up the garrison, without duly weighing his allegiance to the fair Sophia. In short, no sooner had the amorous parley ended, and the lady had unmasked the royal battery, by carelessly letting her handkerchief drop from her neck, than the heart of Mr. Jones was entirely taken, and the fair conqueror enjoyed the usual fruits of her victory. Here the graces think proper to end their description, and here we think proper to end the chapter. CHAPTER six, A FRIENDLY CONVERSATION IN THE KITCHEN, WHICH HAD A VERY COMMON, THOUGH NOT VERY FRIENDLY CONCLUSION. While our lovers were entertaining themselves in the manner which is partly described in the foregoing chapter, they were likewise furnishing out an entertainment for their good friends in the kitchen, and this in a double sense by affording them matter for their conversation, and at the same time drink to enliven their spirits. There were now assembled round the kitchen fire, besides my landlord and landlady, who occasionally went backward and forward, Mr. Partridge, the sergeant, and the coachman who drove the young lady and her maid. Partridge, having acquainted the company with what he had learnt from the man of the hill, concerning the situation in which Mrs. Waters had been found by Jones, the sergeant proceeded to that part of her history which was known to him. He said she was the wife of Mr. Waters, who was a captain in their regiment, and had often been with him at quarters. Some folks, says he, used indeed to doubt whether they were lawfully married in a church or no. But for my part, that's no business of mine. I must own, if I was put to my corporal oath, I believe she is little better than one of us, and I fancy the captain may go to heaven when the sun shines upon a rainy day. But, if he does, that is neither here nor there, for he won't want company. And the lady, to give the devil his due, is a very good sort of lady, and loves the cloth, and is always desirous to do strict justice to it, for she hath begged off many a poor soldier, and by her good will would never have any of them punished. But yet, to be sure, Ensign Northerton, and she were very well acquainted together at our last quarters, that is the very right and truth of the matter. But the captain, he knows nothing about it, and as long as there is enough for him too, what does it signify? He loves her not a bit the worse, 
and, I am certain, would run any man through the body that was to abuse her. Therefore I won't abuse her for my part. I only repeat what other folks say, and, to be certain, what everybody says, there must be some truth in it. Ay, ay, a great deal of truth I warrant you, cries Partridge. Veritas odium parit. All a parcel of scandalous stuff, answered the mistress of the house. I am sure, now she is dressed, she looks like a very good sort of lady, and she behaves herself like one, for she gave me a guinea for the use of my clothes. A very good lady, indeed, cries the landlord, and if you had not been a little too hasty, you would not have quarrelled with her as you did at first. You need mention that with my truly, answered she. If it had not been for your nonsense, nothing had happened. You must be meddling with what did not belong to you, and throw in your fool's discourse. Well, well, answered he, what's past cannot be amended, so there's an end to the matter. Yes, cries she, for this once, but will it be mended ever the more hereafter? This is not the first time I have suffered for your numbskulls, pate. I wish you would always hold your tongue in the house, and meddle only in matters without doors, which concern you. Don't you remember what happened about seven years ago? Nay, my dear, returned he, don't rip up old stories. Come, come, all's well, and I am sorry for what I have done. The landlady was going to reply, but was prevented by the peacemaking sergeant. Sorely to the displeasure of Partridge, who was a great lover of what is called fun, and a great promoter of those harmless quarrels which tend rather to the production of comical than tragical incidents. The sergeant asked Partridge whither he and his master were travelling. "'None of your magisters,' answered Partridge. "'I am no man's servant, I assure you, "'for though I have had misfortunes in the world, "'I write gentlemen after my name, "'and, as poor and simple as I may appear now, "'I have taught grammar school in my time. "'Sed hey mihi, non sub quod fui.' Uh, "'No offence, I hope, sir,' said the sergeant, where, then, if I may venture to be so bold, may you and your friend be travelling. You have now denominated us right, says Partridge, amici sumus, and I promise you my friend is one of the greatest gentlemen in the kingdom, at which words both landlord and landlady pricked up their ears. He is the heir of Squire Allworthy. What? THE SQUIRE WHO DOTH SO MUCH GOOD ALL OVER THE COUNTRY, CRIES MY LANDLADY. EVEN HE, ANSWERED PARTRIDGE, THEN, I WARRANT, SAYS SHE, HE'LL HAVE A SWINGING GREAT ESTATE HEREAFTER. MOST CERTAINLY, ANSWERED PARTRIDGE. WELL, REPLIED THE LANDLADY, I THOUGHT THE FIRST MOMENT I SAW HIM HE LOOKED LIKE A GOOD SORT OF GENTLEMAN, BUT MY HUSBAND HERE, TO BE SURE, IS WISER THAN ANYBODY. I own, my dear, cries he, it was a mistake 
A mistake, indeed, answered she. But when did you ever know me to make such mistakes? But how comes it, sir, cries the landlord, that such a great gentleman walks about the country afoot? I don't know, returned Partridge. Great gentlemen have humours sometimes. He hath now a dozen horses and servants at Gloucester, and nothing would serve him. But last night, it being very hot weather, he must cool himself with a walk to yon high hill, whither I likewise walked with him to bear him company. But if ever you catch me there again, for I was never so frightened in all my life, we met with the strangest man there. I'll be hanged, cries the landlord, if it was not the man of the hill, as they call him, if indeed he be a man, for I know several people who believe it is the devil that lives there. Nay, nay, like enough, says Partridge, and now you put me in the head of it. I verily and sincerely believe it was the devil, though I could not perceive his cloven foot. But perhaps he might have the power given him to hide that, since evil spirits can appear in what shapes they please. And pray, sir, says the sergeant, no offence, I hope, but pray, what sort of a gentleman is the devil? For I have heard some of our officers say there is no such person, and that it is only a trick of the parsons to prevent their being broke. For if it was publicly known that there was no devil, the parsons would be of no more use than we are in time of peace. Those officers, says Partridge, are very great scholars, I suppose. Not much of scholiards, neither, answered the sergeant. They have not half your learning, sir, I believe it. And to be sure, I thought there must be a devil, notwithstanding what they said, though one of them was a captain, for, methought, thinks I to myself, if there be no devil, how can wicked people be sent to him? And I have read all that upon a book. Some of your officers, quoth the landlord, will find there is a devil, to their shame, I believe. I don't question, but he'll pay off some old scores upon my account. Here was one quartered upon me half a year, who had the conscience to take up one of my best beds, though he hardly spent a shilling a day in the house, and suffered his men to roast cabbages at the kitchen fire, because I would not give them a dinner on a Sunday. Every good Christian must desire there should be a devil for the punishment of such wretches. Harky, landlord, said the sergeant, don't abuse the cloth, for I won't take it. Damn the cloth, answered the landlord. I have suffered enough by them. Bear witness, gentlemen, says the sergeant. He curses the king, and that's high treason. I curse the king, the villain, said the landlord. Yes, you did, cries the sergeant. You curse the cloth, and that's cursing the king. It's all one and the same, 
for every man who curses the cloth would curse the king if he durst. So for matter of that, it's all one and the same thing. Excuse me there, Mr. Sergeant, quoth Partridge. That's a non-sequitur. None of your outlandish linguo, answered the sergeant, leaping from his seat. I will not sit still and hear the cloth abused. You mistake me, friend, cries Partridge. I did not mean to abuse the cloth. I only said your conclusion was a non-sequitur. Note. This word, which the sergeant unhappily mistook for an affront, is a term in logic which means that the conclusion does not follow from the premises. End of note. You are another, cries the sergeant, and you come to that, no more a sequitur than yourself. You are a pack of rascals, and I'll prove it, for I will fight the best man of you all for twenty pound. This challenge effectively silenced Partridge, whose stomach for drubbing did not so soon return after the hearty meal which he had lately been treated with. But the coachman, whose bones were less sore, and and whose appetite for fighting was somewhat sharper, did not so easily brook the affront, of which he conceived some part at least fell to his share. He started, therefore, from his seat, and advancing to the sergeant, swore he looked on himself to be as good a man as any in the army, and offered to box for a guinea. The military man accepted the combat, but refused the wager, upon which both immediately stripped and engaged, till the driver of horses was so well mauled by the leader of men that he was obliged to exhaust his small remainder of breath in begging for quarter. The young lady was now desirous to depart, and had given orders for her coach to be prepared, but all in vain, for the coachman was disabled from performing his office for that evening. An ancient heathen would perhaps have imputed this disability to the god of drink, no less than to the god of war, for in reality both the combatants had sacrificed as well to the former deity as to the latter. To speak plainly, they were both dead drunk, nor was Partridge in a much better situation. As for my landlord, drinking was his trade, and the liquor had no more effect on him than it had on any other vessel in his house. The mistress of the inn, being summoned to attend Mr. Jones and his companion at their tea, gave a full relation of the latter part of the foregoing scene, and at the same time expressed great concern for the young lady, who, she said, was under the utmost uneasiness at being prevented from pursuing her journey. She is a sweet, pretty creature, added she, and I am certain I have seen her face before. I fancy she is in love, and running away from her friends. Who knows but some young gentleman or other may be expecting her, with a heart as heavy as her own. 
Jones fetched a heavy sigh at those words, of which, though Mrs. Waters observed it, she took no notice while the landlady continued in the room. But after the departure of that good woman, she could not forbear giving our hero certain hints on her suspecting some very dangerous rival in his affections. The awkward behavior of Mr. Jones on this occasion convinced her of the truth, without his giving her a direct answer to any of her questions. But she was not nice enough in her amours to be greatly concerned at the discovery. The beauty of Jones highly charmed her eye, but as she could not see his heart, she gave herself no concern about it. She could feast heartily at the table of love, without reflecting that some other already had been, or hereafter might be, feasted with the same repast. A sentiment which, if it deals but little in refinement, deals, however, much in substance, and is less capricious, and perhaps less ill-natured and selfish, than the desires of those females who can be contented enough to abstain from the possession of their lovers, provided they are sufficiently satisfied that no one else possesses them. CHAPTER Seven, CONTAINING A FULLER ACCOUNT OF MRS. WATERS, AND BY WHAT MEANS SHE CAME INTO THAT DISTRESSFUL SITUATION FROM WHICH she was rescued by Jones. Though nature hath by no means mixed up an equal share either of curiosity or vanity in every human composition, there is perhaps no individual to whom she hath not allotted such a proportion of both as requires much arts and pains, too, to subdue and keep under. A conquest however, absolutely necessary to every one who would in any degree deserve the characters of wisdom or good breeding. As Jones, therefore, might very justly be called a well-bred man, he had stifled all that curiosity which the extraordinary manner in which he had found Mrs. Waters must be supposed to have occasioned. He had, indeed, at first thrown out some few hints to the lady, but when he perceived her industriously avoiding any explanation, he was contented to remain in ignorance, the rather as he was not without suspicion that there were some circumstances which must have raised her blushes, had she related the whole truth. Now since it is possible that some of our readers may not so easily acquiesce under the same ignorance, and as we are very desirous to satisfy them all, we have taken uncommon pains to inform ourselves of the real fact, with the relation of which we shall conclude this book. <clears throat> this lady, then, had lived some years with one Captain Waters, who was a captain in the same regiment 
to which Mr. Northerton belonged. She passed for that gentleman's wife, and went by his name. And yet, as the sergeant said, there were some doubts concerning the reality of their marriage, which we shall not at present take upon us to resolve. Mrs. Waters, I am sorry to say it, had for some time contracted an intimacy with the above-mentioned ensign, which did no great credit to her reputation. That she had a remarkable fondness for that young fellow is most certain, but whether she indulged this to any very criminal lengths is not so extremely clear, unless we will suppose that women never grant every favour to a man but one, without granting him that one also. The division of the regiment to which Captain Waters belonged had two days preceded the march of that company to which Mr. Northerton was the ensign, so that the former had reached Worcester the very day after the unfortunate re-encounter between Jones and Northerton, which we have before recorded. Now, it had been agreed between Mrs. Waters and the captain that she would accompany him in his march as far as Worcester, where they were to take their leave of each other, and she was thence to return to Bath, where she was to stay till the end of the winter's campaign against the rebels. With this agreement Mr. Northerton was made acquainted. To say the truth, the lady had made him an assignation at this very place, and promised to stay at Worcester till his division came thither, with what view, and for what purpose, must be left to the reader's divination. For though we are obliged to relate facts, we are not obliged to do a violence to our nature by any comments to the disadvantage of the loveliest part of the creation. Northerton no sooner obtained a release from his captivity, as we have seen, than he hasted away to overtake Mrs. Waters, which, as he was a very active, nimble fellow, he did at the last-mentioned city, some few hours after Captain Waters had left her. At his first arrival he made no scruple of acquainting her with the unfortunate accident, which he made appear very unfortunate indeed, for he totally extracted every particle of what could be called fault, at least in a court of honour, though he left some circumstances which might be questionable in a court of law. Women, to their glory be it spoken, are more generally capable of that violent and apparently disinterested passion of love, which seeks only the good of its object, than men. Mrs. Waters, therefore, was no sooner apprised of the danger to which her lover was exposed, than she lost every consideration besides that of his safety, 
and this being a matter equally agreeable to the gentlemen, it became the immediate subject of debate between them. After much consultation on this matter, it was at length agreed that the ensign should go across the country to Hereford, whence he might find some conveyance to one of the seaports in Wales, and thence might make his escape abroad. In all which expedition Mrs. Waters declared she would bear him company, and for which she was able to furnish him with money, a very material article to Mr. Northerton, she having then in her pocket three bank-notes to the amount of ninety pounds, besides some cash, and a diamond ring of pretty considerable value on her finger, all of which she, with the utmost confidence, revealed to this wicked man, little suspecting she should by these means inspire him with a design of robbing her. Now, as they must, by taking horses from Worcester, having furnished any pursuers with the means of hereafter discovering their route, the ensign proposed, and the lady presently agreed, to make their first stage on foot, for which purpose the hardness of the frost was very seasonable. The main part of the lady's baggage was already at Bath, and she had nothing with her at present besides a very small quantity of linen, which the gallant undertook to carry in his own pockets. All things, therefore, being settled in the evening, they arose early the next morning, and at five o'clock departed from Worcester, it being then above two hours before day, but the moon, which was then at the full, gave them all the light she was capable of affording. Mrs. Waters was not of that delicate race of women who are obliged to the invention of vehicles for the capacity of removing themselves from one place to another, and with whom, consequently, a coach is reckoned among the necessaries of life. Her limbs were indeed full of strength and agility, and, as her mind was no less animated with spirit, she was perfectly able to keep pace with her nimble lover. Having travelled on for some miles in a high road, which Northerton said he was informed led to Hereford, they came at the break of day to the side of a large wood, where he suddenly stopped, and, affecting to meditate a moment with himself, expressed some apprehensions from travelling any longer in so public a way, upon which he easily persuaded his fair companion to strike with him into a path which seemed to lead directly through the wood, and which at length brought them both to the bottom of Mazard Hill. Whether the execrable scheme which he now attempted to execute was the effect of previous deliberation, or whether it now first came into his head, I cannot determine. But, being arrived in this lonely place, where it was very improbable he should meet with any interruption, he suddenly slipped his garter from his leg, 
and laying violent hands on the poor woman, endeavored to perpetrate that dreadful and detestable fact which we have before commemorated, and which the providential appearance of Jones did so fortunately prevent. Happy was it for Mrs. Waters that she was not of the weakest order of females, for no sooner did she perceive, by his tying a knot in his garter, and by his declarations, what his hellish intentions were, than she stood stoutly to her defence, and so strongly struggled with her enemy, screaming all the while for assistance, that she delayed the execution of the villain's purpose several minutes, by which means Mr. Jones came to her relief, at that very instant when her strength failed, and she was totally overpowered, and delivered her from the ruffian's hands, with no other loss than that of her clothes, which were torn from her back, and of the diamond ring, which, during the contention, either dropped from her finger, or was wrenched from it by Northerton. Thus, reader, we have given thee the fruits of a very painful inquiry, which, for thy satisfaction, we have made into this matter. And here we have opened to thee a scene of folly as well as villainy, which we could scarce have believed a human creature capable of being guilty of, had we not remembered that this fellow was at that time firmly persuaded that he had already committed a murder, and had forfeited his life to the law. As he concluded, therefore, that his only safety lay in flight, he thought the possessing himself of this poor woman's money and ring would make him amends for the additional burden he was to lay on his conscience. And here, reader, we must strictly caution thee that Thou dost not take any occasion from the misbehavior of such a wretch as this to reflect on so worthy and honorable a body of men as are the officers of our army in general. Thou wilt be pleased to consider that this fellow, as we have already informed thee, had neither the birth nor education of a gentleman, nor was a proper person to be enrolled among the number of such. If, therefore, his baseness can justly reflect on any besides himself, it must be only on those who gave him his commission. End of Section 34 of Tom Jones Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California Spring 2008